As we do every Sunday, we're going to start with the uh, book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 3, eight verses, uh, starting with verse 19. Proverbs 3:19 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. We can see on a big level that all of creation was established by God. And then it kind of goes from something that's really big to a smaller level. Maybe something our own speed, our own life. And we can see that if we adhere to God's wisdom, which was able to establish everything around us, everything that was made, our lives will be well. And what I like about this is the part about sleep. Barring some type of medical issue, why do people have trouble falling asleep? Because usually their head is on the pillow and it's quiet and they're thinking about their finances, their kids. How am I going to pay for my kid's tuition? Um, you have all these things that you're thinking of, health issues, what you have to do tomorrow. Uh, but, you know, when you really get closer to the Lord and you really develop that relationship with him, you, and I've done this before, I'm like, you know what, Lord, it'll be there in the morning, I'm just going to sleep. <laughs> it's your problem. But it's that, it's that closeness to God, it's that, you know, really laying hold and meditating on that wisdom and that understanding it gives us that peace enough to sleep. Even the Bible says when your enemies are against you. In those days, it wasn't a whole lot of protection. If your enemies wanted to get you, eventually they'd probably find you. So this is somebody who can sleep peacefully knowing that the Lord is in control. Okay, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 3. What we covered the last two Sundays was... The first four series, the first four churches in a series of seven churches that Jesus speaks to. He's writing direct messages to these churches. The church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the, the church of Pergamos, Thyatira. We covered those four. The next two churches are going to be, today we're going to see in Sardis and Philadelphia. And next Sunday we're going to see the last church, Laodicea. And we talked about these churches. Each church you could see... Um, any church you've been to in your life, you can see elements in some of these churches. We also know that there's a church age or church era, starting with the first church, the apostolic church, all the way up until today. It's segmented into church eras. And we also spoke about the, ge the geographical church at the time. Jesus was speaking to seven specific churches about specific uh, problems indigenous to them in their time period. Now, the last time we were here, uh, nobody else pointed this out to me except for my wife. Apparently, in chapter 2, I left off the last two verses. Did anybody find that, see that? Nobody? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it had something to do with me turning 41 last week. But I hope that's not a harbinger of future sermons. So I'm going to read the last two chapters. I didn't do it on purpose, or the last two verses of chapter 2, and then we'll jump into chapter 3. Uh, chapter 2, verse 28, only two left. It says, and I will give him, Jesus speaking, the morning star, he who has an ear, 
let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This was to the church of Thyatira, um, that we, where we left off last Sunday, the morning star. The morning star has a lot of different meanings, but it's also known as, even today, that star in a certain part of the world that just before the dawn, when the, the night is its darkest and coldest, this star comes up and it kind of gives hope to the day, it gives brightness to the day. Now today we know that Venus, the first planet from the sun, takes on some of those characteristics and because it's so close to the sun, it looks like it's a star in the sky because it it reflects the sun's light. But the morning star was also uh, a name for Jesus all the way back in the book of Numbers, in Peter's work, and in Revelation. What Jesus is, is he's the star. He's the hope that we have. And what we see is the promise here of belonging to Jesus. What's Jesus saying? I will give him the morning star. What Jesus is saying is, I will give the person who overcomes me. 2,000 years ago, we got the best Christmas present we could ever ask for, the babe that was born in the manger to the virgin. That was our Christmas present. Jesus is saying to those who overcome, to those who have a relationship with me, what are you going to get? You're going to get me. I'll take that. It's a sense of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the best gift that we could ever hope for. Okay, going to chapter 3, starting with verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. He's speaking to a church. Pretty powerful stuff here. Certainly something that I wouldn't want to hear. Verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Sardis was known as the dead church. It's known as the feeble church. Uh, A widely accepted date for this church era, if we're going in eras, is 1500 A.D. all the way up to the Great Tribulation. It was a possible reference, at least in some respect, in an era to the Protestant Reformation, which a lot of evangelical churches indirectly are an outcropping of. So it's certainly something that every church should listen to what Jesus says and take, take some constructive criticism. Uh, the city of Sardis, I'll give you a little history, so it kind of helps to understand the, the background to this. The city of Sardis proper back then was built into a mountain or into cliffs. And a lot of the times those people of Sardis thought that their city was impenetrable because of the natural barriers. Uh, the city had a former splendor and lived in past glory at this particular time that Jesus is speaking to them. Twice in, this, in the history of that city, as, uh, actually many more times, but at least two well-documented times, the city was sacked as the enemy scaled up the cliffs And there were some guards that weren't paying attention. They weren't watchful, right? And the enemy got in. They overtook the guards, and the rest of them scaled the walls and broke into that city and and decimated the city. So that's what happened on a worldly uh, term. 95 AD, Jesus is speaking to this church. And he's saying to the church of Sardis, basically, you follow the similar path of the city proper. You're living in your past reputation. Now, that's interesting to look at because you can see a lot of analogies. Um, Some Christians do that. They live in their past reputation, and they're almost kind of coasting out until the Lord returns. And that's kind of sad because a relationship is gone going. 
We spoke about a marriage or any type of relationship that if after 10, 15, 20 years you decide, I don't want to put anything into it anymore, what's going to happen? It's going to start to come apart. So the city and the church lived in its past reputation. The church wasn't paying attention and it was taken over by deadness. Now, what's also interesting, and the historical stuff really puts it all together. This city, okay, historically was known for its huge necropolis, which is known as a burial ground. And there's a saying of the Christian life. If you're a Christian, you're in one of two places spiritually. You're either in the battle, you're fighting the good fight of faith, you're in a spiritual battle, right? Or you're in the cemetery. There's no, there's no in between. You're either in the battle or you're in the cemetery, you're dead. Dr. Havner uh, came up with, I guess he called them four stages of ministry. One is the man. Jesus, of course, founded what we now believe in. Two is the movement. Okay, it's starting to go, right? It's starting to pick up speed and, 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 and further God's kingdom. Three is the machine. Now it's become a machine. It just becomes something that kind of runs on its own, and we're not really sure if the Lord is in it, but it's a big machine. And the last stage is a monument. Well, Sardis was a monument, and it was in desperate need of revival. The first thing we see Jesus say about himself is, I, am, I have the seven spirits, or we talked about before the sevenfold spirit. Now, a glorious name of a church or a ministry or a person, you can, it can be as glorious as you want with the name. But if there's no Holy Spirit, it's dead. Because we know that the Spirit gives life. So without the Holy Spirit, anything with a nice name is just window dressing. He has the seven stars. Now, if the stars represent pastors, which we spoke about, I could see Jesus saying, and I don't want to speak for him, but if you can't do the job, I'll get somebody else who can, because I have the seven stars in my hands. And many pastors and many churches have come and go over the years, and Jesus replaced them. Jesus says, I know that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Whenever I'm asked if I'm a, one, are you one of those born agains? I always hesitate. And in my mind, I almost, I actually say, how much time do you have? Because what I do is I go over John chapter 3. Jesus speaks about, he says, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you were born again. And he speaks about what being born again means. However, let's go back to the name. The name born again, especially in our society, has been abused so much that I'm not quick to say I'm born again unless they understand what born again means. Okay, you see the label issue going on there. Like Sardis, too many have abused that name over the years. Now, 95 AD, the time that Jesus or the time that John was, for the most part, writing this letter, let's go all the way up to 1500 AD to the, what we would call the Protestant Reformation, which... Sardis was probably emblematic of in some respect. Let's break it down. Protestant comes from protest. There were clergy who loved their church, and they protested its corruption. Reformation, the, the root word of that is reform. So they were protesting the abuses, and they wanted to reform their church because they loved their church. That's how it started out. So what happened to the movement? What happened many centuries later? Well, Check out what's going on in Europe. If you actually go online or if you've traveled to Europe, I was looking at an article that said Europe abandons Christianity. A lot of the Protestant movement, a lot of these denominations that came out of it, not all, they're closing down. The churches are dead in Europe. And what's happening is a lot of them are being bought up by mosques. And I saw pictures of them, church, the steeple, the cross, 
They take the cross down, they drape Islamic writing over it, and they take over the church because it's dead. There's nobody there. It's gone. Isn't that a shame? And many, even in this country, yield little growth. A lot of them rent their buildings out after their services to other groups so they can pay their bills. Many have bought into ecumenism at any cost and are allowing the world in at any expense, at the expense of Christ. Many of the Protestant reformers who willingly gave their lives and spilled their blood for the, for the Bible being written so that people could understand it, for preaching the true word, were killed because of these beliefs. They would roll over in their graves if such a thing was possible, if they could see what was going on today. And I say many, not all. We never want to paint that broad brush. But what does a Sardis type of church look like today? You may have visited this type of church. The people are nice. The music may be nice, the social events, but what is the main event on Sunday? What's coming out of the pulpit? Maybe political discussion, maybe discussion about the latest Christian book, maybe current events, maybe global warming, maybe social issues. And those things are all fine, but there's no Bible, there's no Jesus, there's no blood, there's no hell, there's no resurrection. It's not there. It's like if you were starving and you hadn't eaten for three days and you came to me for sustenance and I unwrapped this big sandwich and you thought you were going to really get some meat there and you take a bite out of it and I gave you a sandwich that was all white bread. You'd still be hungry. You'd still be looking for some more. You would say, my body is craving nutrition. I haven't eaten in three days. Right? But you get nothing. As today's Proverbs tells us, uh, nothing works well without God's wisdom. So why leave it out of the church? That's the place for God's wisdom, at least primarily. Why is it being left out of the church? I've said this before. Church is not primarily a social club. Understand this. The social aspect of us being here, the social aspect is predicated upon God's word. Why do we come together? Because we are like-minded people. We believe the same things. If we take God's word out of it, we talk about politics and we talk about social events, we all may not agree on that. It causes confusion. But what we should agree on and what we can agree on is God's word. So the social aspect of any church is predicated on or upon God's word. Otherwise, we become just the moose club or the social club, which they're fine, but they're just a social club. Verse 2. I'm going to repeat that. It's powerful. Jesus says to the church, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Things are critical mass at this point in the church of Sardis. Sardis. From this point on, it's damage control. The beauty of this is, from our perspective, this is a lost cause, isn't it? You know, you guys are dead. And even what still remains, it's, it's on its way out. It's ready to die. It's dried up. It's withered. It's dehydrated. So it looks pretty bad. But what did Jesus say while he was on earth? With man, these things are not possible. But with God, anything is possible. Now, this is in a message of encouragement today, I believe. And, you know, the book of Revelation has fire and brimstone in it. But it also has woven through it as a message of encouragement. And God always gives us a message of encouragement. How many of you today think, you know, look at the church of Sardis. It's pretty bad. But sometimes, you know, people come in and off the street or... You can walk into a church and put on the church face and smile and shake hands. But how many of you today have come in off the street and thought, my situation is a lost cause. I can see what's going on in Sardis, but I can't hold the marriage together. I can't hold the job. I have an addiction problem. My kids don't talk to me. Or E, all of the above. My situation is hopeless. 
You don't know my past. Well, you don't know my past, and I'm not about to tell you everything about my past. But Jesus knows your past. Jesus knows your past. And if Jesus is the author of the resurrection, then I don't care what you came in here with, Jesus can breathe life into any situation that you have. He can breathe the Holy Spirit into any situation that you're struggling with. So there's your marriage message of encouragement and hope. If he could do it for the Sardis uh, church, and he, he compels them to do it, then they must be able to do it. And he can do the same thing for us. Verse 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, here's the warning, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, that should sound familiar to you if you've been with us for the last few Sundays. This is similar advice that Jesus gave to the church at Ephesus. He told them, go back to where you have fallen and make it right. Look on the timeline of your life, figure out where you messed up, where you cut the ties with the Lord, go back to that time and figure it out and do right. Repent. Jesus said, I will come like a thief. And this is very similar. Remember, the way Jesus speaks, the imagery he uses is something that those of Sardis, if they lived there for some time and know the history of their city, could be familiar with. I will come like a thief. And if I'm in Sardis, the church of Sardis, I'm thinking, yeah, the city kind of was taken by a thief. And these guys scaled the walls and nobody was paying attention. Nobody was watching. They were dead in their watchfulness and they took over. So this is what Jesus is saying to them. I, I think of the faithful and wise servant in Matthew 24. There were two servants, right? And there was a bunch of servants, but we're focusing on a good servant and a bad servant. And the master, who's a picture of the Lord, he goes away. And he expects his servants to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. We're a picture of the servants. And one of the servants is behaving himself. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He, he follows the instructions that the master gives him. But the other servant, the Bible says, when the master leaves, he gets drunk. He's carousing. He's beating his fellow servants. It's just mayhem. And what happens when the master comes back? There's a faithful and wise servant who's going to be commended, and there's another one who's going to be cut in two and appointed with the hypocrites, according to the Gospel of Matthew. So we will be caught, we will be caught Christians. Jesus will come upon us as a thief in the night if we're the bad servant. But if we're the good servant, we'll just be expecting him now, won't we? Different attitude, same master, same uh, behavior of the master. Verse 4. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a continual theme of the faithful remnant in any of these problematic churches. What does it mean to walk in white garments? Well, there was some imagery back then. If you lived in that area, you would know when the Romans were triumphing, they would wear white garments. It was a Roman triumph. Okay, that makes sense there symbolically. Also, even the pagans treated their God better than a lot of Christians did. In the pagan societies, you couldn't go before your, your false God's temple with dirty garments. They had to be clean. So they, should, they would certainly understand this. Better yet, Isaiah 1, 18, a few verses. The Lord says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So 
to be soiled with sin and the filth of the world, if you overcome these things, you will walk with me in white garments. We also know that white garments were seen in the transfiguration. When James and John and Peter saw the transfigured Jesus, they said they described his clothes like clothes that they had never seen been bleached so white. He just was transformed to this. It's, it's even beyond the color white. It's just this incredible uh, imagery and, and picture of cleanliness and purity. So the faithful in Sardis and all saints will be perfected and go to heaven if they overcome. The book of life in those days, the cities had names or had books with names in them that indicated citizenship. And when a citizen died, they would erase his name from that book, that registry in Roman times. Uh, or if that citizen lost his privileges, they would find his name and they would wipe out his name from that registry. But what, what do we think of or what is the book of life, God's book of life in his economy? Well, I could just picture God, you know, just being in his presence and he's got this huge book, this big dusty book. And he just kind of lays it down on the table and he says, Deprosimo, come here in that James Earl Jones type of voice, right? For lack of a better uh, descriptor. Yes, yes, my Lord. D, D, how do you spell your name? D, E, P, R. Nobody can spell my name, but God can. Deprosimo, you're in here. Oh, rejoice. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome into the joy of the Lord. So I, I just, when I ever see the book of life, I just think of this tremendous book that's just dusty and he just plops it down at the end and opens it up. And <laughs> is my name in there? If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trusted in his uh, way to rid your sins and his blood was shed for the remission of your sins, I can tell you right now that your name is in that book of life right now. And there's a lot of discussion about the, the, the name being blotted out and people talk about losing your salvation and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? It's all about choices. We make the choice. We make the choice to receive Jesus as our, our Lord and Savior. I know that my name is written in there because the Lord had promised me that. Not, not of an arrogance, but because of God's promise. And Jesus gave us, the, the, uh, again, the command to overcome. And he wouldn't command it if it couldn't be done. The word overcome is used in the letters of all seven churches. Overcome, overcome seven times. And he says, I will confess his name before the Father, before my Father and before his angels. And then that should be familiar to you. In Matthew 10.32, Jesus says the same thing. Jesus says, whoever confesses my name before men, and that's kind of the impetus to the altar call in a sense, he, not, not to be ashamed of Jesus, but to confess his name before men. Yes, you'll stand before anybody and say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Jesus said in Matthew 10, if that's the case, then I will confess his name before my Father and the holy angels. But the, the one who rejects me and denies me, that's not good. Before my Father and the heavenly angels, I will deny him. That's pretty bad because when you're confronted with your sins and you don't have a really good defense attorney, you're really in trouble. Okay, God, God lays it all out. This is what you've done from the beginning. Jesus is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. And he, he, it's funny, he doesn't use trickery like some do today. But what he says is, yeah, he is guilty, my client. What? That, that's, you're supposed to be helping me out. He's guilty, but I paid his sins. All those sins, all his life, I paid for those on the cross. So that's what you're looking at here. The Sardis Christians moved away from the cross and the blood of Jesus, as many churches have today. They were ashamed to confess him. So what does a Sardis church look like today? It's dead. The only thing alive about the Sardis church is its name, then and now. 
There was a famous line in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet that said, a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. Well, this is the opposite. A dead church bearing a name, no matter how glorious, is still dead. Well, but we're the Protestant Reformation. That's our name. Jesus says, you're dead. Well, what about if we call ourselves evangelicals? If you're dead, you're dead. Born again, you're dead. Calvary Chapel, change our names, you're still dead. The supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, forever and ever, eternity, we're the only one church, that's going to be our name. Jesus says you're still dead. You slap a label on a corpse, I don't care how nice the label is, it's still a corpse. It's not going to change. And this should be sobering to us. It's also a wake-up call for Christians individually. I'm a Christian. I'm holy. I've arrived. I come from a good Bible-teaching church. What does the Lord say about your life, about your heart? Take off the facade and, and let's go into the heart. Because, you know, if you're dead, Satan doesn't really mess with you. You're not a threat to his kingdom. He doesn't care. He's going to move to the Christian who's really trying to further the kingdom of heaven. That's what Satan is going to do. And unbelievers, if we're dead inside, especially the Sardis church, unbelievers aren't going to see us as desirable. They're not going to see us as a source of life. Wearsby said, Warren Wearsby said, when we grow too comfortable in our churches, we find ourselves slowly dying. This, my friends, is a call to arms. This is a call to revival. This is a wake-up call for Christians. And you know what? It, look at the world. The government has no solutions. <laughs> I'm watching this $700 billion bailout of the, you know, whatever, the financial institutions, and I'm just amazed because, you know, they all, they said no, then they said yes, and then they sign it. And you look at all the list of the pork that's put in there. These politicians, they all take a straw and they stick it in the taxpayer and they suck the life out of us. That's what they do. They said $700 billion a few years later, it's not going to pan out. And it, there's all these political projects for all these. I can't believe they would do this. You know, they still, they still slap us in the face. So what it shows us is that the government is not going to help you. The financial markets in Asia and Europe are nervous about this. You know, it's certainly going to open the door to what we're going to read in uh, Revelation later about the one world government and the one world system, that everything's kind of tied in together so that we can all stabilize each other, even though the seas uh, separate us. When we go into the book of Revelation, you know, Babylon, Babylon has fallen. Those who the kings of the earth uh, made wealthy with Babylon. We see the smoke of her rising. You're going to see a lot of stuff in this book that's really going to be, um, and I'm not predicting the end of the world by no means, but certainly what's going on today is an impetus and it's the catalyst for what we see in the book of Revelation. So I think it's very time appropriate. But, you know, government can't solve our problems. I don't care which candidate gets in and I don't care if they both get in and they work together. They still can't solve our problems. Our foundation needs to be in Jesus Christ. If we're dead, Jesus calls us to be breathed life back into us and to try to further the kingdom of heaven and be that faithful and good servant. Verse 7, moving on to Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he, speaking of himself, who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Philadelphia. Again, it's not Pennsylvania, it's what we would know today as Western Turkey. Uh, it's actually known as the, you know, you've heard the city of brotherly love. That's what it means, the love of the brethren. But of course, you know, the revisionist historians will say that we have no Christian roots in this country. So, 
It's just a, it's just a fluke that Philadelphia has that name. It's, that was a sarcasm. You're supposed to react to that. The Church of Philadelphia is, to, is supposed to, to go anywhere from 1750 to the rapture. Now, the Philadelphian church was really known as one of the churches, the faithful churches of the last days, is also known as the missions church. So you, your question may be, what does brotherly love have to do with missions? Well, if you really love others, certainly the way of salvation is a good way to show your love by propagating the way of salvation. During this time period, there was a big movement to go to the ends of the earth to give the gospel. Any of, those, any of you who have studied missions know that 1750, 1800 was the big movement for uh, Christianity to be spread, especially to the Eastern world. Matthew 24:14 says something very interesting. When Jesus speaks about the last days, he said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So what we understand is that there's a, uh, the impetus to the end coming, or the culmination of all things, or the events in Revelation, is that the whole world would get the gospel. Now, with the advent of satellites, even in repressive countries, if you have a computer, you can find Christianity that can come through your, your computer through satellite or through the Internet or whatever. Uh, so in the age of all modern technology, it's actually very hard now to keep the gospel out of a country. So what we see is in our technologically advanced age that this is going to come to pass a lot quicker than it would have 100 years ago. Jesus calls himself a few things to the Church of Philadelphia. He who is holy and true. Why? Because this was an affirmation to the Philadelphians to know why they were so devoted to Jesus Christ. He was authenticity in the midst of, an, of a place that was uh, rife with false gods. Jesus says, I am authentic. Okay? That's why you do what you do. He says, I have the key of David. That's a picture of the messianic kingdom uh, which is the kingdom in the end when the Lord comes back and he establishes his reign and his authority and his government on the earth, uh, it's going to be a perfect, uh, blissful uh, rule because it's going to be authored by Jesus himself. And this was a picture of hope. Remember, if you're a Philadelphian, you live in a time, especially in 95 AD, okay, let's go back to the, the original people that Jesus was speaking to, where there's persecution, where Jesus says you have a little strength, where... Uh, there's others around that are trying to take them down. So you need that encouragement. And what, the way Jesus speaks about himself is he's giving them that encouragement by explaining exactly who he is, make no mistake. The shutting and opening of doors is a picture of sovereignty. I open the door, no man can shut. I shut the door, no man can open, Jesus says. God is in total control and authority of your life. See, this is also missions terminology. I was talking this week to a missionary from Malaysia who's going to be coming and speaking about you know, his, the Lord leading him to Malaysia. And whenever I talk to these missionaries, they all sound the same. And that's not a bad thing. It's lingo. Pastor Joe, last year I was praying and, uh, about going to Malaysia and the door was closed. This is how they talk. And then uh, three months later, the Lord opened the door. I could have a missionary from Russia. You know, Pastor Joe, I was praying for passport. And you know, the Lord opened the door and I got it. This is the way they talk. They don't check with each other. It's the same lingo. It's the Philadelphian church, right? It's pretty neat. But also, there's another aspect to it is your life. Our lives are a series of almost as if we were walking through a corridor and there's a bunch of doors lined up. And again, this is symbolic with labels on them. You know, children, marriage, 
you know, success, opportunity, uh, serving the Lord. And some of those doors, as we walk through the corridor, we really want to get in. Really good job. And the door's locked. And you're huffing and puffing and you can't blow that door in. Uh, you got to move on to another door. Wait, that door is open. Oh, waiting. That's great. Patience. You know, and then when you walk through that door, there's another corridor of doors. And again, it's symbolic. Some doors are open and some doors are closed. I may walk through an open door today and then find out later the other door that I wanted to be open that was closed of a year from now is now open and I can go through that door. So that's what it is. It's, it's all about opportunity. And the labels above those doors have different things on them, but they're doors of opportunity that God opens or closes based on whether he wants us to go through those doors or not. Verse 8. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, again, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. The open door again. Now, we're going to see that in, in next Sunday's sermon that the disciple John, a door opens in heaven, and a voice calls to John and says, come up here. Okay? The door that's opened in heaven, a picture of the rapture, a picture of gazing into the eternal, uh, a picture of the afterlife. It's a picture of an open door at the end of your life if you're in Christ that nobody can shut. That door of opportunity to eternal life is, that's the best door that you can walk through, is the door of eternal life, opportunity that is open once you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and nobody can shut it. But the open door is also the impetus to why we further God's agenda on the earth. When you know what the Lord has promised you, and you understand his promises and the things he's given us and what he's done for us, then you just can't help yourself. See, works is not, we don't work ourselves into heaven. What we do is we're excited by what the Lord has done for us. We want to work. I want to do this. You know, I want to study. I want to be a pastor because I know what the Lord has done for me. And I would be a fool to take those gifts and push them on the side. So an open door. And he says, you have a little strength. Now, this may refer to actual strength uh, or numbers or both. Uh, missionaries often struggle. I'm going to go back and forth between this particular church and the missions church. Missionaries often struggle financially, help-wise. Uh, oftentimes, they go to other countries where they don't have the same freedom of religion. They're abused by the authorities. Uh, and even Jesus said, the harvest is white for picking, but the laborers are few. But you know what? Jesus can make do with a few. Remember Gideon's men, they, were, they had to fight uh, people, 135,000 of the enemy, and he started with 32,000, which they were still at a disadvantage, and God whittled down that army to 300 faithful men, and they beat the enemy advancing army with only 300 men. So Jesus always makes do with very little. It's just the way he works. Unfortunately, though, the door is open, the opportunities are there. Many Christians are not doing a whole lot for the kingdom. And I say that they're content being content. I'm content. I like being saved. I know I'm going to go to heaven. I like everything that the world has. I'm happy. I don't need to do anything. A lot of Christians are content being content. That's why there's always, you see these small numbers in the scriptures. Uh, the Lord always has to work with a small number of people. Verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, we've talked about this before. In that western part of Asia, there were some problems. Um, there were 
many synagogues that were friendly to the Christians and that there were some that were hostile. In this area, specifically to this church, they were hostile. And we talked about that. But worship at your feet. Again, this is a reference to the kingdom age. In other words, everything will be reversed. Guys, don't worry about it. Right now you're persecuted. Uh, missionaries go through a hard time. But in the end, everything will be reversed. You will sit at my right hand. And the dominators, the evil dominators, will be dominated in, in the kingdom age. The rebellious under Christ's authority and those he sets up in authority will be over those rebellious. And we've heard these expressions before. The humble will be exalted and the exalted will be abased. And there will be a time that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is a, uh, a reference to the worldwide great tribulation. The world is going to go through this complete hour of trial, this awful uh, time period for the inhabitants of the earth. And as we go into the book of Revelation, we're going to see the cataclysmic events, you know, the seas turning to blood, the fish dying, uh, you know, scores of the population dying, an awful time in history that hopefully, you know, not hopefully, but I believe will be at the mezzanine level and we'll be kind of taking a look because we're not going to be in the middle of it. Jesus says the whole world will go through this hour of trial except for you, except for you, my believers. Now, a few things about this. Number one, the time that this was written in 95 AD until today, this event has not happened. That's why we believe in Calvary of a pre-tribulation rapture. All right, This event has not happened where all these Christians from 95 AD till today were spared and the whole world at once went through this awful time period. Number two, the door is open to believers and the rebellious are tried on the earth. The open door comes to the believers and the rebellious are tried on the earth. Number three about this, this is a reason for the church age because the Sardinians or Sardines or whatever you want to call these people, they're dead at this time, right? So in 95 AD, Jesus says the whole world is going to suffer this trial except for you believers, you're going to be taken out of it. Now, from 95 AD until today, all those people are definitely dead and buried. So who is he speaking to? He's speaking to us. Okay, He's speaking to, there's a picture of us. And maybe that happened to them specifically, but it's certainly going to happen to us in the rapture and the great tribulation. Verse 11, last few verses. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, there's a few different images. You have the the crowns, you have the names. Uh, There's a few things going on here. There are different types of crowns mentioned in the Bible, and each crown indicates a different type of reward. There's the crown of life. There's the crown of righteousness. But what's interesting is, as we go further in the book of Revelation, all those faithful followers, all the crowns that they wear, when they bow before the Lord's throne, they take the crowns off and they put them at his feet. Whatever we get from the Lord goes back to him anyway. So it's kind of it's like an ecosystem thing. It kind of works pretty good. So the crowns. And it goes to show that the crowns are achieved through life's work. Because if you persevere, if you overcome, these are the crowns that you will retain. So over your life... You, you retain certain crowns. The second point, the promises to the victors and the overcomers. 
He says, you will be pillars in the temple of my God. Now, in the temple, when the temple was built, they had these huge stone pillars that they would put to hold up the structure. The temple was a very big structure, very weighty. Uh, so they had these solid temp- or pillars that had to hold up the actual structure of the building. That was the, the strength of the building. So does that mean that God is going to you know, make us stone and we're going to be like this forever, holding up? No. What he's saying is that we will become a part of him. We will become a, um, a non-negotiable, needed, everlasting part of who he is. Now, the Philadelphians of those days would have understood this because the city was prone to earthquakes. And if you look at pictures of ancient cities, even after the earthquakes, uh, even the, the Allied bombing of Europe, you see that the only thing standing is the pillars. You ever see pictures of, of those old cities? The roofs are gone. Everything surrounding them is gone. All you see is a bunch of pillars in a row. So the pillar is something that stands the test of, of time. It denotes stability and permanency. And we are an integral part of God's house. And then the third image is to be sealed with the name of God and the name of his city. When I see this, again, it's a picture of belonging. It reminds me of the sailors, you know, a lot of the military guys who would go and they would have the Rose and Mom or their, their, their wife's name or their girlfriend's name tattooed on their shoulders, right? It was a picture of belonging. Because when you get a tattoo, it's, I mean, today you can get it removed, but for the most part, it's permanent. And God... It's so cool because we are sealed with God's name. It shows a picture of belonging. It's relationship. And this is what Sardis was lacking. That's why Sardis needed these promises. That's why they needed to understand these things because Jesus says, you're found wanting. You're found lacking. And you need to overcome. To have. It's like the Lord has this big bag of goodies waiting for us. I have, you know, you're going to be sealed with my name. You're going to be a, t- a, a, a pillar in my house. You know, I have all these things for you, but you need to overcome. You need to get past where you are at this point. You need to get rid of the deadness, and you need to have new life of the Holy Spirit breathed into your church. It's almost like, um, you know, I belong to the Lord. Again, the, the tattoo or a, a new relationship, or maybe a young lady, and, and she's courting a man, and she says, oh, he's so dreamy. You know, this is the Lord. He's so dreamy. He's our Savior. He bought us with the spilling of his blood. And therefore, the best thing that we could ever get as a gift is to know that we belong to him. So in closing, what does a Philadelphian church look like? Not a whole lot of specificity to it, but there's three things that I found. Number one, Jesus had nothing negative to say about Philadelphia as he had nothing to say negative about Smyrna, okay, as we go through this. Uh, So we can come to the conclusion that, number one, the Philadelphians were an obedient church. Number two, If we understand that this is a missions-minded churches, it certainly would explain the Lord's pleasure in light of Matthew 24, 14 that we read. Missions is so important. Giving the gospel to the rest of the world is so important that that actually is one of the things that precedes the Lord's return, isn't it? And, you know, we've had Olga up here to talk about the Ukraine. We're going to have a gentleman from Malaysia. We support a lot of missionaries. We want to be missions-minded, but also even on a personal level. There was a, um, a woman in our church that uh, it was so cool because I was going to the store and I saw her and she was going to the same store as me and she came in and she started talking to the clerk and she said, did you read the book I gave you? It's like some of you, without even saying anything, are going individually and you're giving the gospel. This guy happened to be a polytheist. He believed in many gods. So she's trying to reach him for Christ. And I was like, wow, that's, that kind of, that was cool. I was like, uh, you know, a pleasant surprise. 
So not only missions-minded, let's get out of the mindset of other countries, but there's people in this country who really haven't understood the Lord and don't really know what he stands for. And the third thing about a Philadelphian church is humility. These Philadelphians were humble at the hands of their persecutors. That's why Jesus gave them all that imagery of, don't worry, it's not going to be like this all the time. And Jesus, while he was on the earth, said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So a Philadelphian church is a church that displays some of these qualities, or, or a majority of these qualities. What's the message here? Going back to the two churches, Sardis had a vivacious title, but it was dead inside. What did Jesus speak about the uh, religious leaders of his time? He spoke about the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he said, You guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. you got the fancy robes. You look all holy. You make the faces when you fast. But, man, you're dead inside. There's nothing to you. There's no life. It's just all about appearances, right? But Philadelphia had the right heart, and the Lord commended them for it. Obedience and overcomers. Combining these two churches, here's the lesson for the church and the Christian. Number one, the Bible says this. Man sees the appearance, but God sees the heart. We all look at each other, and some of you may look more holy than the others, or somebody may come in new and see everybody standing like with their hands up and worshiping and say, I don't belong here. These people are really holy. Man sees the outside appearance, but God sees the heart. So love the Lord with all your heart, and love others, like Jesus says, and be yourself. If you're doing the right thing, don't care what anybody else thinks of you. And two, if you're not, rededicate your life to him today and grow your relationship with the Lord until the very end. And three, have a name and a heart that shows your love for him and don't take him for granted. Let's pray.